You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. All right, if you would grab your seat and or make your way to your seat and open up to the book of Ruth. We're in chapter four. So we're in the final chapter of Ruth and our Advent series leading up to Christmas. Redeemer, hope has come in the little town of Bethlehem our last week. Um, I, I, hope, I hope that as we've gone through this little book, I hope that it has just caused you, especially with just it being in the Old Testament, we've been in the New Testament for, for a while, that it has just really caused you to just fall more in love with your incredible Lord. Um, and I hope that even as we've just unpacked it, that, uh, that it's caused just affections to bloom within your heart as you have seen Christ in all the scriptures. And so my hope is that today is no different. And uh, I believe it's going to be no different that we will see Christ in, the, in, in chapter four. And we will be amazed at the Lord's goodness and kindness and steadfast love and faithfulness uh, today. So in light of that, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you already for just kindly meeting us as we have heard your truths declared through prayer, through the singing of songs. Lord, hearing in conversation with one another, having meaningful conversations and hearing your truth. But now we do something unique. We open your word and we read your word and your word is declared. And so we pray, Lord, change us. Do your mighty work, Lord. Grow us in you. Cause our eyes to see you more clearly and our hearts to be filled with greater affection for you and amazement. Lord, may it be so that as we open the word, may just never, when we never cease to be amazed at your goodness, never cease to be amazed at your faithfulness. And may that continue on today. Lord, have this moment. Have this moment. Be exalted. Open our eyes. Illuminate your word to us through your Holy Spirit. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and the church says, amen. Amen. Today we're in the final chapter of Ruth. And it's led us up now to officially to Christmas week. And I don't know about you, but as I drive around and I'm looking at all the the decorations and the neighborhood and children are out of school, that it, it, it really is beginning to feel a lot like Christmas, isn't it? Especially now that it's getting really, really cold. That just kind of helps out. My girls are not, are not losing the faith that it might just snow. That would, that would be wonderful. In, in this time of Christmas time, there's, there is a, another aspect that's unique about this season. And one of those things is that there are movies that we do not watch the entire rest of the year until December, right? In some homes, there are rules, like the Strata home, there are rules where you cannot start watching movies until December, Christmas movies until December, and even then, it matters how many times you watch one movie, right? There are rules about these things. Um, We love Christmas movies. We love Christmas movies. They start coming out in this season. Christmas movies, uh, there's something about them that just kind of stirs our, our joy most times. It kind of grabs at our hearts. So what is it that draws us to 
Christmas movies. What is it? Well, nearly every single one is a story of redemption. Every, nearly, I would say every single, nearly every single Christmas movie that we enjoy, especially in our house. I was looking at this. I was looking at the list. What are movies we watch every Christmas? Nearly every single one is a story of redemption. They are redeeming stories, stories filled with wonderful, happy reversals that put a smile on your face and joy in your heart. Think about every Christmas movie that you enjoy. There, There are characters presented that you grow to love and cheer for, and then there is unexpected trouble that brings them into the pits of despair and a sense of hopelessness. But without fail... As the movie comes to a close, something happens that redeems their life from the pits of despair. Where there was lovelessness, there is now love abounding. Where there was no snow, now there's suddenly snow, right? Uh, where, Where there was a sense of emptiness, there is now fullness. Where there was barrenness, there is fruitfulness. Where there was gloom, there is now gladness. Christmas stories are often redemption stories, and so they are filled with wonderful, happy reversals in the end. Well, as our God writes his story of redemption for his sin-fallen and broken people throughout the pages of Scripture, today in Ruth chapter 4, we see a beautiful ending to a redemption story that is filled with wonderful, happy Reversals that, that out of this story echoes into history and is tied to each and every one of you. If you are a believer in this room, the redemption story at the end of Ruth ties to your redemption story ultimately in the end. And that's what we're going to see, see today. We're going to see our great Redeemer and how he shines through the Redeemer we see in Ruth chapter 4. So with that said, let's look at Ruth chapter 4 and follow along with me. As I read God's word, so I can adjust here. Ruth chapter four. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you, tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. And I have brought bought that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. The name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and the nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. We've learned the last couple weeks that, that flowing out of the gracious heart of God, he had put in place laws and responsibilities among his people in in order for for those who were doing well to care for those who had hit rock bottom, either because of a death in the family, so their family line had essentially ceased, or because of bad or sinful decisions or unforeseen circumstances that they had found themselves in with incredible debt. And so they either had to sell something off or they had already been, had lost everything, a family line. So either way, and sometimes it's all combined, and that's kind of what we've seen in this story. It's all been combined. There's been death in the family. There's been loss of property. There's all sorts of loss here. They are unable to help themselves, unable to save themselves from the debt or despair that they were in. But God created this role among his people called a redeemer. It was this redeemer role or a kinsman redeemer. A redeemer was a relative 
who could step into the situation and pay the incredible debts owed and restore all that had been lost or even marry into a family and take on a childless widow who, as their wife in order to restore the, family, the family's lineage and so doing, redeeming their life. Last week in, in Ruth chapter three, if you remember, Boaz assured Ruth that somehow, some way, he would make sure that she is redeemed. He, he himself, though, we learned he is a redeemer. He has this redeemer responsibility, but we learned that there was actually another man who had fir- first option of redeeming this family. But Boaz assured Ruth that either way, when morning came, he would do whatever it took to see that she was redeemed. Wonderful, beautiful determination of a redeemer. And so chapter three ends with Naomi now assuring Ruth that she can wait and essentially rest knowing Boaz, this determined redeemer, will not rest until he sees her redemption through to the end come the morning. And that leads us then into chapter four where some form of the word redeem is repeated 13 times throughout this chapter. So this is the chapter of redemption that we've been waiting for. This is the final of the story, the redemption moment. And so so with that, the first point, and it's the longest point of the day, verses one through 12, we see redemption at Bethlehem's gate. Redemption at Bethlehem's gate. Coming out of the, the, the eventful night of chapter three, the morning sun has risen on the city and this determined redeemer has set his sights on accomplishing his work of redemption. And all Ruth can do is wait and rest. That's all she can do. Boaz goes to the gate of the city, which is in those days uh, was where official business was done. And in order to accomplish this act of redemption, it meant he now needed to find the man who was the possible redeemer. And just like we've seen so much in the story, it's wonderful. I don't know if you caught it as we read it, but surprisingly, what happens? Once again, once again, the invisible hand of God in verse one to bring about his plans and purposes for good and his glory in the lives of his people. Remember, we're, we're being trained as we go through this book to see that invisible hand, to see the providence of God at work. And so I hope as we read it, you, you, you caught this. So in verse one, what are we told? Behold. So the writers wanting us, wanting to grab us. Look at this. Look at this. Behold. The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Oh, man. Didn't we learn in chapter two, there is no such thing as chance, right? There is no such thing as just luck. We're supposed to see that. The behold, look, this one who who we know Boaz has to talk to, he goes into the city, the city, the city gate. There's all kinds of people there, all sorts of folks. He goes to the city gate and behold, the guy he needs to talk to is there. We are supposed to see that and almost just smile once again, as we've done throughout this whole letter, as we say to ourselves, wow, 
Look at the kindness of the Lord. He really does want this work of redemption to happen. And so look how he is bringing this all together. Truly, truly, the Lord is able to work all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. There is no luck that just a sovereign. This is what we this is what we should echo in our hearts as we see verse one. Just incredible. There is no luck. Just a sovereign God accomplishing his incredible plans and purposes. That's immediately verse one of the final chapter just hits you with this. Just a sovereign God accomplishing his plans and purposes in the lives of his people. He is able to do what he needs to do to get his work done. And so immediately, you don't have to look far for encouragement in this chapter. Immediately you say, that God is my God. That same God who is able to do what he needs to do in order to accomplish the work he wants to accomplish is the God reigning over my life. And so take heart, Christian. Take heart. God is at work even when you don't realize your God is at work. Take heart. Boaz stops the man. <laughs> I can't even imagine what's going through his heart. I mean, I just, I just, I'm always, I just, I could keep, I could just sit here for a good while talking about this. Boaz stops the man and has him sit with him and gathers 10 elders of the city, which meant, which meant there were now witnesses for a legal proceeding to happen. And Boaz presents to the man his opportunity of redemption. We find out that there's apparently this piece of land that Naomi also has from, this, from Elimelech, and so it's needing to be redeemed. But, but before Boaz mentions about Ruth also needing redemption, the man says, I'll do it. I'll do it. You got land for sale? I'm all in. I'm yours. Knowing, so here, let's, let's, let's ponder this for a moment. Why would we be so quick to, to, to do this? Knowing that Naomi's husband and sons have died, and there is no one left to inherit the land, he sees it as a gain. It's a gain because he knows if he buys it without there being an inheritor in Naomi's family, he gets to keep it as his own. He's seeing it as a sweet business deal and doesn't hesitate. I'm in. Until, until he finds out Ruth is a part of the deal. Until he finds out that that this outsider, this Moabite woman who has come and dwelled and taken refuge in God and in the land, that she too is part of it. She must be redeemed as well. Naomi's daughter-in-law, she needs to be redeemed. And he says in verse 6, total heart change, right? I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Cannot or will not, right? I cannot redeem it. If he buys this land and redeems Ruth, which meant taking her as his wife with the purpose to have children and restore the family line of Naomi and Elimelech, 
Here's the deal. Because of the laws of God put in place, there was something called a year of Jubilee that took place every 50 years. And so it was this time that when that time came, all the debts were forgiven. And if there was land that had been redeemed, so it had to be given over to someone else, during, in that year, it would return back to its rightful owner. And so this man knows with that in mind, the, the, the rules and plans God had set and put in place, he, he knew that if I buy this land and I redeem Ruth and we have a son, when the year of Jubilee comes, no matter if I'm alive or dead, if I'm alive, the land immediately goes away from me and I can no longer use it for my own gain. It will go to that son of Ruth. And so he, he's counting the costs. He, he knows he would have to give it all up. So it's not a good business deal. Redeeming Ruth and this land meant sacrifice. Marrying this outsider woman who was an outcast of society was sacrifice. Who knows how you would be known in the city by others? Who knows what they would, people would say about you? Spending his own money, giving up his life at great cost for the good of this needy family. And, 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 and as he counts the cost of redemption, he realizes it's a whole lot of giving on my part. And I get essentially nothing. I get a family with baggage. He's counting the cost and he says, no. No. He's thinking of the business side, the cost of redemption, and he considers it too much. Now, we, as we've been going through this, we've talked about the time of the judges when this book was taking place, that people were selfish. People were selfishly ambitious. They were living for their own good. And no matter what God's word said or God's way of living declared for us to live, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Selfish ambition, motivating decisions. My, me, myself, and I. And don't, didn't you hear that a lot in what he had to say? I, I cannot do this. It, I can't do it for myself. I cannot redeem it for myself. Redemption is not for yourself in the first place, friend. The Redeemer, as a Redeemer, he's thinking the complete opposite of what a Redeemer is supposed to be thinking like. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. I cannot redeem it. The Hesed heart of God that we've talked about, the, the, the unrelenting determination to do good to the undeserving person, despite the cost, was not reflective in this so-called redeemer. Instead, this man is doing what he thinks is right in his own eyes. He's thinking business. Selfishly ambitious. And I think God's word here wants us to pick up on that. Names, we've talked about this. Names meant something in the society. And names mean something in the Bible. <laughs> Right, names have meant, there have been so many names in the book of Ruth that meant something. What's this man's name? We don't know. 
We don't know this man's name. In fact, whenever, and I think we're to catch on to that, this man is nameless. But he's a redeemer, isn't he? Well, no. No, I don't think he's any redeemer at all. This man remains nameless. In fact, when in verse one, when Boaz calls out to him, what does he call him? He calls him friend. And when you look up the word for friend, it actually means, literally is, so-and-so. So it's almost as if the guy's walking by and he says, hey, so-and-so, friend, hey, friend. It's purposely keeping him nameless. God is intentional in his word, right, saints? God is intentional. So every jot and tittle is in the word for us, including those who remain nameless. This, this, <laughs> this man cares more about his wealth and future more than he cares about God's people and God's word and God's way of living. And so what does God do? He blots his name out from history. It's a serious call for the redeemers who don't redeem. And so you're kind of left asking. You're kind of, and it's weird because we know the story. We already know what's about to come. It's weird. I know, I, I, I've been studying this, but yet my heart, even in this moment, feels, feels broken. Because you're almost like, that's so sad. And it's so wrong when redeemers don't redeem like they're supposed to. And that's what's supposed to grab at us. There's this faulty, fraudulent redeemer here. And so your heart is left asking, who will redeem? Is there one who shares the heart of God, the Hesed heart, the covenant kind heart of God, who cares more about God's people than he cares about himself? Who cares about obeying and following God's word and way of living? And so he's willing to give of himself to sacrifice what he has to redeem another. Looking for their good in his sacrifice. Is there another one? Well, let's keep going. That is contrasted with Boaz. Who has this, we've already heard in Ruth chapter 2. He's this Gibor Hayil. He's this man, this man of valor among so much darkness. He's this man who shines, who shows up to the fields with his workers and servants, and he's not speaking down to them. You almost get the sense, right? And it holds echoes of Christ. I could just, I would just almost want to stop every little moment, just say, look at Christ. Look at Christ. He goes and he goes to his servants those whom should be serving him. And yet, how does he treat them? He treats them as one who is lower than them. He says, bless you. Lord, bless you. Who does that remind us of? Oh, oh, a servant among servants. Yet, he is to be served. His, his character has shined already in the book of Ruth. Well, here it is again. This man of, of true character, of a faithful redeemer, a, a heart that reflects the Hesed heart of God. And in verses 9 through 10, knowing the great and sacrificial cost, Boaz knows the cost, knowing it wasn't for his own good. He had no lack. He didn't need this to put him all of a sudden in a good life status. The decision, the motivation wasn't motivated by that. He had no lack. He had all that he needed already. Yet, for the good of another, 
He counts the cost and without hesitation redeems. Without hesitation steps into the role of redeemer and redeems the land and redeems Ruth, taking her as his wife, taking the outcast, the unwanted Ruth, at one point who was a part of a people who were enemies of God and makes her his bride. (laughs) Do you already, are you already hearing the echoes of Christ? Do you already hear that? We'll, We'll get there. We'll get there. What's the right response when we see Redemption done rightly. What's the right response? Verse 11. Verse 11, we're told the people who are gathered around, the people of the city, including the elders, they're watching this. They're witnesses, they say. They're witnesses of such a sacrificial work of redemption. They just witnessed this fraudulent redeemer turn down, selfish motives, turn down the role of redemption. And then they see Boaz, who is known in the city, stand-up man, count the cost, without hesitation, redeem. They've witnessed this happen and they cannot contain themselves, but pronounce three prayer-filled blessings of the Lord upon this Redeemer and His bride. You get this sense as if they just are watching and they can't help but respond to something so wonderful and so good. And little did they know Just how, in the Lord's undeserved kindness, just how each of these things would come to pass. First, first they asked that the Lord would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, the Lord gave them children. Even even at moments when they were barren, the Lord gave them children and used them to build up the people of God on the earth in unimaginable ways. They asked that Ruth would be that way. Remember, she didn't have children yet. She had been married, from what we understand, for 10 years possibly. So it seems as if she she couldn't have children. But they pray this prayer and pronounce blessing over them, that God may give children as he did with Rachel and Leah, and that they may be used for the kingdom people of God. Second, they asked the Lord that Boaz, this faithful redeemer, would continue to act worthily. <laughs> they, they, Boaz has been called this, this is the same word, this Gibor Hayil, this, this, this worthy one, this man of valor, this one who stands out beyond all the rest. They are seeing, they witness the redemption, and they say, may he continue to be worthy, to be a worthy one. My heart just explodes, saints, because I, I, I can't even wait. I can't even wait until we get to the gospel. How heaven cries out worthy to our Redeemer. They know who the worthy one is. They see his redemption and they can't even contain it. Baby, worthy. Who is there one that is worthy? He is. Oh, the heavens cry out, worthy. This is the right response for a good redeemer. 
So may he continue to be worthy. May he act worthy. May he continue to be a Gabor Hayil, a man of valor. And the little, little did they know as they prayed this, and they, they prayed that his name would be renowned, that he would be known, his fame would, would fill Bethlehem. Little did they know that a few generations later, oh, just beautiful, in First Kings, Solomon would build the temple where, of God, where all of God's people were to come and worship. And, and at the very entrance of the temple, one of the pillars, the strong pillars, who is, that is holding up the place of worship. Do you know what he named it? Boaz. He names the pillar holding up the place of worship. Boaz. He names it Boaz, the strong pillar. And little did they know that this prayer blessing that they pronounce over, over Boaz, little did they know that many years later, God's people would still be talking about this faithful redeemer. <laughs> Amazing. Last, they ask that the Lord, that the Lord, they ask the Lord that Boaz's house would be like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah, with generations of children that the Lord would give them. If you remember the story, in Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar are about to have babies, and there are two babies. And they're going to come out. And one comes, puts his arm out. And so they tie a red ribbon around his hand to say, okay, that's, that's the firstborn. That's going to be the one who's going, to, who's going to get the family line and get all these blessings pronounced over them. But then all of a sudden, when they put his hand back in, Perez comes bursting out. And his name literally means to, to break through because of that. That he was the unexpected firstborn. Perez, he's unexpected. But he broke through what we were expecting. And so here we are. It was this unforeseen, unexpected firstborn son of Judah, this unexpected one who would break through the barriers of of what we thought was going to happen, what was normal and expected. He was given this extraordinary role of carrying on the family line of Judah. And the family line of Judah was considered a royal family family line. Genesis 49, the blessing pronounced over Judah was that from his family line, there would come a royal one who would rule and reign over all, whom the nations would bring tribute to and the people would serve and obey. That blessing over Boaz and Ruth's family is what is referred to. That May your house, may, may your house, Boaz, be like the house of Perez, this unexpected, unforeseen blessing. One used in the family line of God. We'll hear more about this later. There's a surprise at the end of the, the book here. But that's what's being pronounced. It was this reminder that God chooses the unexpected. He is the God of great reversals. They thought one boy was coming out and the other boy came out. He is the God of unexpected reversals, but wonderful, marvelous reversals to fulfill his plans and purposes. And little did they know how that would be fulfilled in Boaz and Ruth's lives, which is what we, be, what we see next. So point two, verses 13 through 16, redemption in a Bethlehem family. So redemption in a Bethlehem gate, redemption in a Bethlehem family. The story 
begins to come to an end all of a sudden and, and it begins to fast forward in Boaz and Ruth and Naomi's lives. And we're told Boaz and Ruth get married. And now all of a sudden it's like the writer says, I'm going to stop hiding the invisible hand of God and I'm going to reveal who's been behind all of this good now. And he says, and it's the Lord who enabled Ruth to finally become pregnant. And she has a son who can carry on the family, the family line. It, it, it's, it, so it's this, all of a sudden, it's kind of this great reveal where he hasn't mentioned the Lord doing all of these wonderful things, right? It's just been his providence, the hidden hand of God working. And now when there's a baby on the scene, all of a sudden now the writer says, and you know who gave that? The Lord is the one who gave that. It's the Lord who is the giver of life, who we sang about earlier. He is the one doing all of this good. He is the one causing all the great reversals of this story. Who is the, he ultimately is the great redeemer behind their redemption. It is the Lord whose invisible hand has been faithfully, graciously, mercifully, kindly been working all this time. In fact, we're we're intended to see just how kind and faithful the Lord has been specifically to Naomi in this story. Specifically to Naomi, who at the beginning of the story, she was wandering from God with Elimelech and then returned to the promised land. But how did she return? What was her posture of heart? She returned grumbling and with bitterness towards God, seeing his sovereignty, yet doubting his goodness, right? Throughout each chapter, we're to see that as the Lord has been working to redeem outcast Ruth, the Lord has also been working to redeem undeserving Naomi. We're supposed to begin to catch this in these very verses, in verses 13 through 16. We're supposed to see this and begin to be amazed at just how kind and faithful the Lord is to those who are his, despite their unfaithfulness. Despite their heart struggles, despite their doubts, despite their daunting circumstances, for those who are his, for those whom he is in covenant with, there is nothing, nothing. Pastor Rob mentioned this in our confession because of the covenant with Christ. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Well, that echoes here all throughout the story. Ruth, this undeserving one who's been grumbling and bitter to God in chapter one. But what do we see every single chapter? God's goodness towards her. God's care and provision for her. God's love for her. And you see it kind of come to just complete climax here in these verses. And it's to remind us that there is, with this covenant-keeping God, He is the ultimate promise keeper. Whenever we break our promises, we, we walk in unfaithfulness, Yet he just is steadily faithful and good to us. There is nothing that you can do or go through that will cause his faithfulness to waver. That's one incredible takeaway that we take away from the book of Ruth. There is nothing we can do in all of our grumbling and doubting and None of our circumstances that are just crushing and paralyzing. And haven't we been there? There have been moments where we, including myself, there are moments where we say, oh, this is just too much. How can this be? 
But there is nothing that will cause our God's faithfulness to waver. And it's just hit, it hits us over and over again in this book. There is nothing that can cause his covenant kindness to cease. There is nothing so daunting that it can thwart his plans and purposes for our good and his glory. He is faithful. He is unrelenting. He is truly the determined Redeemer. Amen? He is, precious saints. Remember in in Ruth chapter 1, it was the women of the city who saw Naomi return to Bethlehem, empty, grumbling, bitter, broken, and they were stunned. And now in verse 14, it's this reversal. The women of the city are present seeing all of this goodness of the Lord towards Naomi, and they praise the Lord who has not left Naomi without a redeemer. It's this wonderful reversal. This bookend to to this book. These women at the beginning of the book, I mean, we're watching her walk in bitter and broken and empty. And now at the end of the book, verse 14, praise the Lord, Naomi is in the Lord. The Lord has provided a redeemer. The Lord has cared for her. But look at this. The redeemer they are talking about is the baby boy from Ruth and Boaz. Obed. That's the redeemer that they're talking about specifically for Naomi. So in this story, In this story, in the book of Ruth, God is the great redeemer. His invisible hand is working all of this redemption and good. God is the great redeemer. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He's fulfilling the purpose as one of us. As one of the family, he's fulfilling his role as a redeemer here on earth, reflecting the heart of God. And even this baby is being used as a redeemer in their lives. He is a gift of God who Naomi will care for in a place of her lost sons. He will care for Naomi as she grows older. And not only that, but as a son, he has redeemed their family line. Redemption has come to this little family in Bethlehem. And you're almost, you almost say, wow, that, this is just some little family in a little town. <laughs> in the middle of the desert, but yet look how invested God is in their lives. It's wonderful. But we do see something in the following verses that this redemption wasn't intended just for this family. That leads us to our third point. It's our last point in verses 17 through 22. Redemption in Bethlehem and beyond. The book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. It ends with a genealogy. And at first you may think, that's kind of a letdown. (laughs) You may be thinking, I skip over genealogies when when I'm reading them. They're just a bunch of names. What good could we find there? That's how the book of Ruth ends. (laughs) You might have even, as you're reading through Ruth, you might have even skipped that part. Who knows? 
But we talked about earlier how our God is so purposeful with every bit of his word. And that is true for this, that, that this genealogy is so purposeful and serves as a beautiful bookend to this redemption story. Remember how the book of Ruth begins. Remember how it begins. It begins with 10 years of devastation in wandering, right? Waywardness from God, 10 years of devastation. And how does it end? With 10 generations of unexpected life, of unexpected goodness from God. Beginning 10 years of devastation, husband death. Son number one, death. Son number two, death. Hope of any family line continuing, death. And how does it end? Full life. 10 generations of life that was unexpected. You talk about great reversals. Wonderful, happy reversals, genealogies. Oh, man, it keeps going. We, we, we learn that Boaz's, Boaz and Ruth's son is named Obed. And we learn that Boaz's great-grandfather, going back five generations, was actually Perez. We didn't know that at the beginning. So when they're pronouncing blessing over him, it's almost as if that, that may you continue on what Perez has started. So that means he's part of the family line of Perez. Well, let's remember back. That means he's part of the family line of Judah. That means he's part of this family, royal family line, that they're supposed to be one who will rule over the people. And remember, right now, there is no king over the land. Remember, this this takes place in the book of Judges. And it says, why are people doing whatever is right in their own eyes? Because there is no king over the land. So they're longing for a king. There is no king to lead his people, to lead God's people away from waywardness. There is no king to guard them. There is no king to lead them in paths of righteousness. And so they're waiting for a king. They're wanting a king. And now we learn Boaz is part of the family line where the king is supposed to come from. So you mean this whole time, this little family that just seemed like Nobody's in the desert was actually God also caring for a royal family line in whom five generations ago he promised there would be a king come from that line. And it almost died off. The family line almost died off. So where would the king come from? We have no idea. So God is fulfilling. He does whatever he needs to do to accomplish whatever it is he wants to accomplish. Oh, my Oh my, but the family line goes on. So, so Perez is this five generations ago grandpa who, who, who was this unexpected firstborn son. And so now we're seeing this unexpected genealogy, just this great reversal to accomplish God's wonderful purposes. And the family line keeps going. And so what do we see here? Let me see. Turn my page here. The, the. So you follow the family line and... and and, and you begin to just see these names. So beginning with Perez, you see that eventually Salmon fathered Boaz. And how did he father Boaz? We, we learned a few weeks ago through Rahab, who was an unexpected inclusion into the family of God, this outcast 
of the people yet brought into the family of God. Boaz is their son and Boaz fathered Obed. And how did he father Obed? Through Ruth, who was this outcast yet included into the family of God. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. That's the big reveal. That's the big reveal at the end of the book of Ruth. David, born of Bethlehem, an unexpected king to lead God's people from an unexpected family, a shepherd who would become Israel's most beloved and greatest and faithful king. And boom, the book of Ruth ends. That's it. It sort of kind of leaves you, wow, okay, we, there's a, there, that's where the King David comes from. The providence of God through outcast people being brought and included into the family through redeeming grace. God brings about this great king of God's people. But God's redeeming work doesn't end in the book of Ruth, does the precious saints. God's redeeming work doesn't end here. Our Bibles that recount the rest of the history of God's saving purposes and acts of redemption don't end here. Over a thousand years later, the genealogy of Boaz and Ruth and King David shows back up at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. This royal family line becomes even more full of unexpected names when it appears again in the Gospel of Matthew. But this time, the genealogy is not called the genealogy of Perez or the genealogy of David or of Boaz or of Ruth. This time, it is called the genealogy of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And it traces 14 generations from Abraham through Boaz and Ruth and Rahab to to the shepherd turned into a king, David. And then 28 generations later to the shepherd of our souls, the king of heaven, God, the son, the long awaited Messiah come to us as one of us, a kinsman redeemer born in Bethlehem, coming from a family line of unexpected redeemers to be our great unexpected, yeah, I should say greater redeemer, Jesus. Oh, amen. Amen is right, brother. How can we not respond to that? Precious saints like Boaz in his unrelenting determination to redeem Ruth, Christ himself, our Lord Jesus, would look upon us as his bride, though we were slaves to sin with absolutely nothing to offer him except for our sin brokenness and all of our baggage, separated from fellowship with God because of our sinfulness, outcasts of the family of God, in fact, enemies opposing God at one point in our lives, wayward wanderers, nothing we could do to redeem ourselves or save ourselves. Yet he would look upon us and consider the cost of our redemption, which was far more costly than anything Boaz was, would lose. But he would not be denied. Without hesitation, filled with the hesed heart of God, the Father consumed with covenant kindness, Christ would give himself over completely 
living in perfectly, a perfectly obedient life for us, enduring the most horrific of deaths on the cross to pay the price for our sin's punishment and was killed and buried in a tomb for us. And just as Ruth Sorry, when you think of, when you ponder that, remember how Ruth responded in Ruth chapter 2? She says, why is it that you would take notice of me? An outsider. That's, that's what we are, that's what rushes over us as we sing these songs we've sung today. Who would have dreamed? Who would have dreamed or ever foreseen this one? Such a marvelous and perfect and holy and good one would come and redeem me? We join in with Ruth. Who am I that you would take notice of me? And so he comes and he counts the cost. And it was horrific. And he would give himself completely killed, murdered in the most horrific of ways. And buried in a tomb, tucked away in a tomb. And just as Ruth could do nothing but wait and rest upon her Redeemer. And come the morning, her redemption was complete. So it was with us. All we we could do nothing. All we could do is wait and rest. But come the morning of the third day, as morning rose, our Redeemer's work was complete. Precious saints, you talk about wonderful reversals. You talk about going from from the night and the hopelessness of the night to in the morning, redemption. Overnight. Incredible, amazing, all undeserved. Nothing we could do to earn it. Nothing we did to deserve it. We are like Ruth, but worse. Worse. Nothing, nothing but the work of our great Redeemer. Brothers and sisters, this this Advent, we remember the coming of our great Redeemer. Born in Bethlehem to live and to die for us. Precious, isn't it? Precious. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Who are we, Lord, that you should be mindful of us? Who are we that you should take notice of us? Who are we that you should give so much for us? You gave of yourself completely and wholly, sacrificially, purchasing us, redeeming us to you. And Lord, we pray then that we would live a life 
Lord, that we would live a life responding like the witnesses at the gate. Worthy. Worthy are you. You alone. May you be worthy among the nations. And may your great name be renowned among all the earth, Lord. For your great redemption. We praise you. We thank you. We can never say thank you enough. Thank you for this sweet letter, for this sweet book, Lord, that reminds us of your great redemption in Christ for us. Amen. Amen.